to humans, leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. My guest this week is a super good friend and one of my guiding lights, a wonderful woman. We do like having women leaders on our show who, after many years of running Black Rock City, is now the chief culture officer of the Burning Man Foundation. She's a woman who can successfully lead a team of 13,000 volunteers. Can you imagine? We've got a lot to learn from her. But first, in time-honoured ritual, let me explain why I'm dedicating time to make this podcast for you with love. So if you work for a company or an organisation of any type, which is private or public, and you work with humans, if you lead teams and you're finding it super tough to motivate them, to keep them on track, to get them going where you know they should be going, bring on humans leading humans. This will become your audio fuel kit packed with the real stories, the tools and the inspiration that we all need to shine as leaders. It's for those times when you need to re-energize, to be inspired, to believe again that you can succeed because here's the thing, leaders across the world have succeeded. They have proved that you get the best out of people if you create environments of psychological safety. And I'm really lucky because I know a lot of those wonderful people. So I'm on a quest to collect those stories, to give you the courage and the know-how to lead more human. So before we meet Tali, I want to say a massive, massive thanks to all of those people who've DM'd me on LinkedIn and through the contact form at www.wearebeep.com to tell me how much that they're enjoying it. It means such a lot to me to hear from you that it means a lot to you. So please keep sending your feedback. It energizes me. Now, next week's guest is John Hagel. You may have heard of him. So listening to him and reading his books, it's like a breath of fresh air to me. Having spent 40 years working in Silicon Valley with companies like Atari and McKinsey and as a managing director of Deloitte's Center for the Edge, he has learned a lot and he has a really interesting take on what the future of work should look like and it mirrors my own Exactly. So I'm really looking forward to finding out which three stories he'll choose to tell. But I can't keep you waiting for one more second. Let me introduce to you Harley Dubois. Harley, I am so, so, so delighted that you're making time to be interviewed for the Humans Leading Humans podcast. And um, I can't imagine which of your many stories that you're going to choose to tell. So I wonder whether, just to let the listeners understand how we know each other, I wonder whether you could tell the story of how we met. 
Well, it's kind of a silly story. <laughs> um, our, the late Larry Harvey, who was the founder of Burning Man, and I traveled to the UK um, because we knew that there were a lot of burners there. And that's those are people that go to Burning Man. And we knew that there were connections we needed to make there. But we didn't really know who to talk to. So we have a lovely employee, Jen Sanders, who was living in the UK, and she just is really good at finding unique, extraordinary, interesting people, and she really understands Burning Man. So she found you, and she brought me to your office, and you took time out of your very busy schedule to spend time with me and to get to know me. And I didn't know I was meeting you, and I don't really think you knew why you were meeting me. (laughs) And then look what happened. And here we are, however many years later, seven years later, and um, knowing you and having been to Burning Man twice, I can honestly say that the experience of seeing what happens when you're in an environment in which people can thrive was just so transformational for me. To be honest, it's been a trigger. It changed my life. Wonderful. You've changed my life. So... Um, Do you want to explain, because some of the people are listening to this, when I first met you, I didn't really know what Burning Man was, and Mm -hmm. I didn't know why I was meeting you. Thank God I did. But I wonder if you could just explain to the people who are listening, what is Burning Man? Yeah, it's a really hard question. I'll try to be as short as possible. Um, People think that it's a crazy event in the desert, and it is, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. What we found is that you can't be crazy, you can't have fun, you can't self-express, if you don't have a framework to make it safe and to make it a place where you can really explore yourself and learn. So we really quickly recognize that we're a community much more than we are an event in the desert. And that what we really teach people is leadership skills. It's like people come to Burning Man and they learn how to be leaders. I know it sounds crazy, but that's what happens when you get put in an extreme circumstance and you're asked to do something that you really care about and you want to do, but you don't really know how to get it done. You learn really fast and hard and you do that with other people. And through that experience, you learn what true leadership skills are. So we're actually a global movement. We have 300 representatives around the world. We have events all around the world and we teach leadership. And you see when you're there on the desert with however many thousand people, a humanity, a creativity, an authenticity, you see the potential of what humans could be. And all the time I was there, as I was volunteering and as I was just spending time with people, I kept thinking, and I remember having a meeting with somebody in the desert with a pink hippo driving past. (laughs) And he owns a very, very, very large agency. And I remember looking at him and saying, what would happen to your organization if you unleash the potential of every single one of your employees? That would give you success. And so all I saw while I was there is experience, psychological safety, being incentivized to be 100% yourself and the power that that brings. I'm sorry for gushing, but... It's changed my life. (laughs) So what do you do within Burning Man? So I'm one of the six founders and the experience that you had when you came to Burning Man, most of the things that you experienced that were infrastructure are things that I created. So how do you get in safely and find your camp and get the resources you need if, if you need something from us. And if you need to have some medical support or rangers or you need someone with a radio to help you, I, I set up all that infrastructure. I ran the city for over 10 years and I learned a lot. And so now I'm the chief culture officer. 
The chief culture officer, yes. Okay, so that being said, what's your first story that was inspired when you looked at the CREATE framework? What mm. pinged to your mind about how you are the leader that you are? Well, I have to say, I was harking back to a time before Burning Man was much of anything. It was a camping trip in the middle of the desert that I was very committed to, but I needed to earn a living. And I was also a painter, so I was trying to support my artistic um, endeavors, um, plus do this thing in the desert and earn a living. So I had a job and I was given the opportunity in my very first job as a manager to grow an entire team. And I was creating a new revenue stream, neither which I didn't know how to grow a team or create a revenue stream. I hardly knew what a revenue stream was. I, I'm not from a business background. I, I was an artist. So I just used my intuition and looked around and used what I'd learned in life and um, started creating this team. And lo and behold, very quickly, we started meeting all the milestones I'd created. My boss started believing in me and we started being successful. And I found that I loved the people I was working with and they seemed to like me. And we got to this point where we went into the black and we were now a part of making this organization better. And I was so excited. We were all so excited. So I thought, okay, now's the time to take our next step. We're going to professionalize. We're going to um, like start like really walking our walk and talking our talk and looking the way we should be looking. So I thought long and hard about what we should be doing to reach the next level. And I wrote an email, spent a lot of time crafting it. I, I included everybody in it. So everyone was sort of personalized in the email. I talked about what we need to do next and how we were going to get there. And I sent it off. And the next day I came to work and I noticed that people's body language had changed towards me. My staff's body language had changed towards me. People weren't looking at me in the eye as long as I used to or, or wanting to spend time with me. And one person kind of walked away from me and I was like, what's going on? And I started hearing from the grapevine that I sent something out that had really upset my team. And I couldn't even imagine what it was because I was just so fresh and new. And then that person who walked away from me had the guts to come up and tell me, you know, you embarrassed me and isolated me and called me out in front of my colleagues. And that's not okay. And I was like, I did what? I had no idea how I had done that. We had a long conversation and I realized, first of all, I used the wrong tool. I shouldn't have sent out an email. I should have had a group meeting. We should have been able to look each other in the eye. We should have celebrated together. We should have looked at each other's body language and smiled and, and hugged each other. Secondly, um, by trying to include everybody, I actually created division. I actually started separating everybody apart. And people became self-conscious and in some cases embarrassed. And, and then I realized I'd lost trust. I didn't even realize I had trust. I didn't even realize that was the key. But when I lost it, all of a sudden I knew. And I realized I used the wrong tool. I realized that instead of bringing people together, I divided people. And instead of elevating, I, I really pushed people down and made people feel isolated. And I learned so much from just that one um, mistake that it was really the foundation to my success from that point on. It's very difficult when you've lost trust, even though you don't mean to, even though that isn't your intention, to rebuild trust again is so, so difficult. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, I completely agree that actually, especially when you're a leader in a large company or when you're too busy wanting to get to those KPIs and you want to win, and actually then your team becomes less efficient because they're yeah. less respected. They're not quite sure where it's coming from. It's... Not a good move. So thank you for that story, number one. And thanks for being so honest and authentic. It's not always easy to talk about the things we do wrong. What's your story, number two? 
From that situation, within months, I was building about five volunteer teams. Now, let me tell you, when you're paying somebody a paycheck, they're willing to take some, you know, uncomfortable situations or less professional situations or unproductive situations from their boss. But when people are volunteers, if you don't get it right, they're gone or they'll just give you an earful. So I learned so much from that situation. I started building all these teams at once and I started building them on trust, on transparency, um, on recognition and respect and um, connectivity and collaboration. That was like the, the baseline model. And what I realized was, was when I put somebody into a role and created a team, that there was a whole subtext going on. There was a whole other thing that was going on at the same time. And if I could pay attention to that other thing, the informal roles, not the formal roles that they were hired into or, or volunteered into, but the informal roles that I could get so much more of the positive good out of the team itself. So what I discovered was for me, I think it probably varies from group to group. One of the things was one person would take on the archetypal role of being the person who sets the pace, the pace setter, like how fast are we going to go? What's our language? How do we work together? And how quickly do we get it done? Or when do we take time? When do we pause? Somebody else took on the role of being the storyteller, filling people in on why we're doing what we're doing, reminding people of what happened in the past, creating the vision for the future. Another person took on the role of being the cheerleader. Oh, we're so glad to have you with us. And oh, we didn't do that great on that one, but next time we'll do better. Another really important role was the mediator, the person who said, uh-uh, no, we have to build a bridge here, you guys. This communication, you had a communication breakdown. And if, if you guys don't get along, we can't move fast and well together. So let's heal the wounds. Another person would be the bean counter. Do we have everything we need? Have you crossed all of your T's? Have you dotted all of your I's? The person with the spreadsheet in the background going, making sure that all of the little things are taken care of. Another one for me was a geek, the person who made sure that we had our technology was up to snuff, that the IT team knew it was coming at them, that, that we had the, the best app to use. And let's see. Oh, this one. This is the best. The best is a tire kicker. That's the person that you go, God, I wish that guy wasn't on the team. Every time I say something, he pokes a hole in it. He's the naysayer. But you know what? That's the person who makes everybody think twice. That's the person that ensures you have the best decision made because they're there challenging you so that you always rise to the best you know, decision. Notice I didn't say a leader. See, these teams don't need a leader. They're working at their best individually and in connection with each other, that they are a team, they're a unit together. And if their boss is not the leader they need them to be, they can work around their boss. If their boss is the leader, like is the person that they've given their, um, their own, um, they say, I trust you. I trust you to make, to help me get to where I need to be. That is the ideal situation. But if the boss really isn't fulfilling the leadership role, somebody else in the group can. And the way somebody becomes a leader, really, really becomes a leader with a group is by earning it. You can't come in and get paid for it. You can't have the education to, to claim it. It has to be given to you by the group. So, you know, you don't have to have one in this scenario. If you're working that effectively and efficiently, you'll work better if you do have a leader. And it's actually best if the leader is your boss. And again, that's a mistake that I see made all the time because the company in the formal organizational model has been given a role. And therefore, they make the assumption they've got that role. And one of the things that we spend a lot of time talking to the people that we work with, the companies that we work with, 
is just be very aware of your informal influences. Make damn sure that you know who those influencers are, because they may not be the people who make it to the top. They may not be the leader, and indeed, they may never want to be the leader. They may be really happy where they are. And an informal influencer is the person where everybody else will go and ask them about something. That's exactly okay. right. And if you don't listen to those people, if you don't empower those people, if you don't make them feel that they're being respected and rewarded and given the space to, they are the most difficult people because they're influencing. Yep. They'll either influence positively or they'll influence negatively. And I keep saying, you know, your job as a leader of any organization is to make sure that you're not just aware of the formal organizational model, that you're always aware that underneath that, there are these roles and those roles shift. Yes. They shift on a daily basis sometimes. And I know what you're saying about volunteers, you know, and I'm running a, a volunteer organization as well as my business at the moment. But you don't have any choice. If you're not treating people with absolute empathy, with respect, giving them chance to have a voice, all of the above, they'll leave. And therefore, what you do when you're leading a volunteer organization isn't, wouldn't it be an amazing world if all of the leaders led like that? So, I, yeah, I mean, I watch in Marvel because I see the respect you get. And how many volunteers work with Burning Man every year when it's on? We just did an inventory and we have over 13,000 volunteers um, that we need to make the event happen. Holy gamoly. Yeah. And every single one of those volunteers knows damn well why they're doing it. They've got a clear purpose. And my volunteering experience there was probably one of the most beautiful times I've had at Burning Man. <laughs> that's not the first time I've heard that. <laughs> you feel like you're part of something that's so much bigger than you. You and are. Again, yes. You are a part of it. <laughs> yes, because without you, it's not exist, non-existent. So exactly. again, Vint was talking about when he was building the internet, he talked about the cathedral. We all could see what that building was going to look like, but we all had our own brick. And that really feels what Burning Man feels like to me. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you, Harley. What's your third story? The third one is, again, one where um, I learned a lot. I was dropped into a situation where I had to take over a big, huge chunk of our organization. It was all the life safety for Burning Man. We have 80,000 people who come to the middle of nowhere, and we take our life safety very, very seriously. So there were three men who were running the three most important portions of that infrastructure. And they were all extremely good at their job, highly qualified, years of experience, were running teams of, you know, between 500 and 1,000 people with all the proper hierarchy, but they didn't get along. They didn't like each other. I don't know how much trust there was. There was little empathy. They just didn't get along. So I came in. And I needed to have things run more efficiently because that was just one portion of my job. And I couldn't be spending all my time trying to build the bridges between these people. I had higher aspirations and more work to do. So I thought I'll go in and I'll meet with them and I'm going to find a solution and I'm going to give them a solution. And that's the way it's going to go. So I sat down with all three individually and I spent a lot of time asking a lot of questions about the way things work and why they work the way they do and why they don't like the other person and what their ideal world would be. And I came out of that with all this knowledge in my head. 
And I thought, okay, certainly we're going to bring everyone together and we're going to build a bridge here. I'm going to find some way to have these people figure out how to work together because I'd learned through this process how beautiful they were and how much um, uh, emotional intelligence they had and how much they'd compromised and learned in their own lives and how much humanity they had as individuals. Sat them down in the room and really didn't get anywhere. A lot of talking, but no change. And I actually had to live with that. I had to spend more time than I wanted to sort of being the bridge between these three men for a period of time, a long period of time. If I had the information I have now, then I would have done something very differently. Having the individual conversation was the right thing to do, but I asked the wrong questions. I should have gone in and said, what are your values? What what do you believe in? What makes you tick? Like, what makes your team go? What do you have to have to be able to function well? What's a stopping point? Something you can't compromise on, something that you will not be able to give up on. I should have gotten inside their heads and understood why they did things the way they did that was so successful. Then I could have walked into the room with these three men more as a facilitator and really been able to find the places where they did have commonality, where I knew that we would never be able to solve that problem right now. And those things would have been on the table. We could have had an honest conversation in the moment, and I think we could have made the progress. And what I learned was that because somebody can build a good hierarchy and work within their own silo in a good hierarchy doesn't mean they can work across, across the silos with other people. But you can do both things, and it's really important. And the people that are truly successful at their jobs. The people in in our military in the United States who become a five-star general can build their hierarchy and they can work across their silos as well. And they can find commonality with their peers so that they elevate their decision-making to not be the decision they want, but the decision that's the best for everybody. So I realized you can do that. And I saw how it didn't happen and how perhaps it could have. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. And it's funny because I've always assumed that the kind of people who make it to the top of the, you know, the military, the army, the navy, would be very command and control. And I happen to, over the last few years, have become quite close to people who have been very, very senior in the military. And the point they make is, A, you wouldn't let anyone near the tools unless you absolutely know that they understand your vision, that they buy into your vision, that they 100% trust you to make the right decisions. So they don't even touch a gun until that's done. We set a vision, we get people to buy in, we make them know they're trusted and trust us. At that point, then you can trust them to try and do the right thing. And again, if you're leading an army and you don't make people feel that they're part of a connected community that we're all working towards something, you end up with some very dodgy situations. And it's taken me a very long time to realize that that's what military training is about. Interesting. So thank you, Harley. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this. It has been the best, best conversation. I totally appreciate your time. Your three stories have, have taught me a lot and given me a lot to chew on, and I hope I- you will. Can I just try to tie a thread together or a couple of threads together? Would you mind? Harley, of course. <laughs> you, if you didn't break the form, I would be surprised. Well, so in my first story, when I did something foolish, if I had admitted I was wrong in that moment, I would have been so much faster building back the trust. So I just want to say, whenever a leader has an opportunity to admit when they're wrong, they are creating an environment where other people can. They are creating an environment where honesty is paramount. 
And they're creating an environment where people can really be themselves and, and admit their mistakes and can thrive. Can, we can all learn together. We can all learn from each other's mistakes. So admitting your mistakes is so important. The next thing is having a difficult conversation where you have to go in and really get to the heart of it and really try to have an impact with something that's really difficult for people to get at, like I had to with these men. I think it's really important to, before you walk in the room, understand what questions you really need to ask for that difficult conversation. But more importantly, you have to find some way to connect with that person before you walk in the room. I call it find the love. What do you love about that person? Now, some people think love is too strong a word call it what you want, call it something that you admire, call it some, some kind of connection. But if you walk in the room and come from a place where you're already setting the tone at humanity, at sharing, at being equal to somebody else, or at least empathic to somebody else, you're going to have so much more success at having a hard conversation. And then people don't appreciate people enough. If you appreciate people, they will not take a raise because they feel valued. Like you can really lean into that. You can appreciate in so many different kinds of ways. You know, the public announcement's great, but some people will get embarrassed. Maybe it's the private tete-a-tete or maybe it's the private lunch. Maybe it's giving somebody more inside information or sharing with them some, some secrets about yourself or, or, or about the business. Like there's ways to appreciate that are so important and we don't spend enough time doing it. If we did it, people would be happier. And the last one is creating some kind of tradition, tradition that you can do with everybody on a regular basis gives people an opportunity to see how they as an individual fit into context of the greater whole. And it's such an easy, easy, easy tool. And it's fun. And it, it works without people even realizing it. And people just don't use tradition or ceremony enough. It's so easy to use. Give us an example of how you set up a ceremony, because I've seen you in, in work in the office in Burning Man in San Francisco. So tell us and uh, give us an idea of what it means, how you've actually manifested okay. that. Here's two, two, two very different things. One is that whenever we sell tickets, we all wear our pajamas to work. Why would we wear our pajamas to work? Because in the olden days, when we would go to sell our tickets, everyone would be trying to get this ticket so fast, it would always break the ticket company. There would be some piece of technology that would break down. And the poor tech team were scrambling so hard behind the scenes to get everything up and running again to be able to sell the tickets that they never get out of their pajamas. So in solidarity, we all wear our pajamas now. We don't have to anymore. All of our tech processes are fine. But it just reminds us every year of where we came from. And another one is that our rangers at Burning Man, our non-confrontational mediators that keep our city safe, have a pin that they give out to everybody at 10 years. So when you've been doing the rangering for 10 years, you go to this amazing ceremony with all these old timers, with all these new people, and you get um, rewarded for your service for 10 years. It's just a teeny little pin. It doesn't cost anything, but I can't tell you how many people like wait 10 years to get that pin. And then they stop rangering afterwards. Like that pin means so much to them that it's actually their secession planning is getting that pin or that moment of just celebration with other people. You know, when did you, how many years did you get your 10 year pin? It just adds so much to people's sense of um, accomplishment, um, autonomy, but also being a part of the greater whole. Yes, there's, again, you know, this is about the reward, actually, that feeling of appreciation of knowing that actually people have bothered to see how much of your life you've managed to give to this thing. And it's powerful. You are a 100% imaginal leader, Harley Dubois. I can't thank you enough for your inspiration. For the next few hours, my brain is going to be buzzing about all of the things that you said. So thank you for your learnings. 
And I hope to see you physically soon in San Francisco when this madness is over. Thank you, Holly. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a wonderful time of sharing. Yeah, my head is buzzing. Thank you so much again, Holly. I cannot wait to see you again in the flesh sometime soon when this madness is over. Lovely listeners. I hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. But as you know by now, I fiercely believe that everything can be better always. So I would really, really appreciate your thoughts. What did you love? What resonated with you? What could I do better? What do you want more of? Who do you think should join our list of imaginal guests? So if you've got any suggestions or comments, or of course a story that will inspire listeners in next week's episode, please DM us on Twitter at BeepMindShift or DM me on LinkedIn on Katz Keeley. Of course, as I said, next week's guest is John Hagel. I love, love, love listening to him speaking about the possible future of work. So looking forward to that. You have been listening to humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Marketing Society. P.S. If you're a senior leader and you need the know-how and networks to be successful and you're not already a member, you should totally become part of that tribe. Massive, massive thanks to Super Terrania for the magical sting of stings. Go to www.wearebeep.com to find out more about the CREATE framework and how we support companies to unlock the problem-solving potential of humans. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for dedicating some of your precious time to this podcast. Please subscribe. You do not want to miss any more of this storytelling magic. Be inspired, be imaginal, be more human, and see you next week. <laughs>